Songs from the Ark of Life incorporates, I would like to think, all the stages or many of the stages that we all go through from birth until death. With Shakespeare, we had seven stages. This is just one way of looking at what some of those different chapters may be like. And I would like to invite people to pick for themselves and choose and add. And there are things that are missing that they sh should incorporate, they would like to incorporate into their own playlist. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma and pianist Catherine Stodd have created a unique musical experience with their new Sony classical recording, Songs from the Ark of Life. Celebrating 30 years of friendship and collaboration in concerts and recordings, Ma and Stott share pieces they have frequently performed but have never recorded, as well as a handful of wonderful discoveries. Here's Catherine Stott. Songs from the Ark of Life is an album that Yo-Yo and I have been talking about making for a very long time. And I think what's really special now is that we've really come together to find the theme of what we're wanting to say. To me, it's a beautiful story from the beginning of life and what we see as the journey, as far as we know it. And it's taken us a long time and much discussion and backwards and forwards as to what we think that journey might be. So we had some starting points. What might happen, you know, when you're a child? What might happen when you're going through your 20s? The kind of adventures you might have where to start, you know, the beginning of life. How do we represent that in music? To me, this is a very cohesive storyline and people can add things to it. They can take something away. They can say, well, that, that, that didn't happen to me, but that's an interesting part of your own story. You know, I love this title, The Ark of Life, because it is one big arc. The first time Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott met, it was completely by accident. In the summer of 1978, Yo-Yo and his wife, Jill, sublet a London flat. But to their surprise, someone else was living there. That someone was Catherine Stott. Returning home after a holiday, the pianist, also unaware of her new roommates, walked into her living room to discover Yo-Yo practicing his cello. Happily, everything sorted itself out, and six years later, what started as an accidental meeting turned into a wonderful 30-year collaboration as recital partners. Aging gracefully together through the years with a collective musical curiosity, the duo has managed to create a remarkable unforced intimacy of playing that unites both of their instruments into a singular voice. Touring regularly throughout Europe, the USA, South America, and the Far East, Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott have recorded three albums for Sony Classical. The 1999 Grammy Award-winning Soul of the Tango, which explored the music of Astor Piazzolla, the 2004 recording Obrigado Brazil, which fuses diverse styles into a cohesive European South American voice, and Paris, La Belle Epoque, a stylish disc of more seriously-minded French music from the turn of the 20th century. Through their decades of conversation and collaboration, these two great musicians have often quizzed each other about their favorite pieces, which express a context for their lives. It was this idea which became the basis for Songs from the Ark of Life. Yo-Yo Ma. The theme of the album is Songs from the Ark of Life, an invitation for the listeners to ponder what are the soundtracks of their lives. Kathy Stott and I 
are sort of taking from our lives, playing for 30 years together, picking favorite pieces that match what an arc of life looks like, what the design of someone's life is like, what childhood is like, what nursery songs may be like through growing up, through adolescence, teenage years, young adulthood, and et cetera, et cetera. And really, we're recording this when I'm about to enter my 60th year. It does give pause for a little reflection and to say, well, you know, what happens in your 30s and your 40s and 50s? Do you just go from adolescence to midlife crisis to death? Or <laughs> are there intervening stages? And what might some of those stages be like? Internationally recognized as one of the most versatile and engaging pianists in classical music, Catherine Stott regularly performs and records with many of today's leading instrumentalists. An imaginative solo and chamber musician, Stott's vast concerto and solo repertoire is equally balanced with her keen interest in contemporary music. She has an extensive catalog of recordings under her belt and also developed several distinctive concert series and festivals. Stott discusses the emotional power of music. Music is able to transcend. It's a way to escape. It's a, a way to go to another, another emotion. Whether we want it or not, it will take us there. I've sometimes sat in a concert. I can feel the way that the person next to me is also feeling that. And sometimes by the end of a performance, there's a collective feeling of joy or of deep sadness. I mean, I, I can remember once completely bursting into tears at the end of a concert, listening and sharing that emotion with an audience was really just incredibly powerful, more so than I would have felt, I think, if I was on my own. And perhaps the emotion became stronger because there were more of us. Yo-Yo Ma's multifaceted career and continual search for new ways to communicate is a testament to the cellist's artistic growth. Whether performing new or familiar works from the standard repertoire, coming together with colleagues for chamber music, or exploring musical forms and cultures outside of the Western classical tradition, Yo-Yo Ma is always searching for connections that stimulate the imagination. His cultural exploration has led to, among other things, the formation of the Silk Road Organization, whose mission is to create meaningful change in the arts, education, and business, and his creative consultant partnership with the Chicago Symphony, which focuses on the transformative power of music. With a discography of over 90 albums that defy categorization, the 18-time Grammy Award winner remains one of the best-selling recording artists in classical music. Born in 1955, Yo-Yo Ma is turning 60 this year and discusses why now was the right time to make songs from the arc of life. I'm really excited about this album because Kathy and I have talked for years about making an album of pieces of music we absolutely love. This is the year we've actually been playing for 30 years. We've known one another since we were in our 20s and seeing each other grow up and go through all these different stages in life. And so we have a performing history and thousands of conversations and experiences that we actually would like to share with our mutual audience. It's all of those things and we've sort of culled together an array of fabulous composers and music 
that I think could be an exemplar of a whole life. Music is perhaps the greatest creation of man. It touches the human soul in a way that separates us from other animals. Scientific and historical analysis has all but confirmed that we are hardwired to respond to music. And as an essential ingredient to maintaining a joyful life, music allows people to express and recreate themselves, as well as recover from many of life's toughest challenges. Songs from the Ark of Life celebrates that power of music. music in our lives is something that's really integral. It's there from the outset, whether we know it or not. Everybody in all walks of life is touched by music. With some people, it's a deliberate choice. And with other people, it's part of the environment and maybe they're not consciously listening. Music was used thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago for bringing people together. So I think people traditionally have always wanted to express themselves with music and with song. We all have a voice. We're born with that. And music is something that really does bring people together at certain times in their lives. There are certain moments maybe of sadness or of happiness that you've actually shared with your family, your friends, or by going to a concert. However you choose to listen to it is stir some emotion. I don't think it's really possible for music not to have some effect on you. Does music have a purpose? Is it merely something to listen to on a recording or at a concert? Or does music have a larger role in society? Often for musicians, the question is, what can we provide to individuals, societies, and cultures? It was this idea that sparked Yo-Yo Ma's very early thoughts to create a project like Songs from the Ark of Life. I first started thinking about this when I was playing at friends' weddings and unfortunately also at their memorial services because suddenly the music I am playing is incredibly purposeful. It's to bring joy, it's to express some form of being in the state of being for two people who want to get married or in the case of a memorial service, you know, it's to have a depth of thinking about someone's life. And it doesn't have to be sad, it could be celebratory, it could be all kinds of things. That took me out of, you know, the usual, okay, I'm playing a concert. For what reason? Why are people coming? Are they coming for the communal sense, feeling of coming together? year collaboration, Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott have had quite a few memorable moments together. Many of these memories are reflected in their selection of pieces on Songs from the Ark of Life and provide context for the recording. How does music help us remember things? And how do societies integrate their collective memories into a culture? I think the role of music, the role of sound, is crucial for anybody that wants to remember anything. We all remember first moments, first date, first this and that. And those are the moments we like to cherish and to be able to reflect on and to kind of say, well, does this add up to something? From 
very beginning of the song or the voice of your mother. It's both incredibly primal. For example, in old movies, you know, you hear just like five seconds of a track, you say, wow, that comes from, a, you know, that's a soundtrack from an old movie. And what does that, and immediately it launches the imagination into that world of older films. You can do that with geographic locations. You can travel through time. When it becomes apparent, you're suddenly your ears are tuned in to sounds that can conjure up many different types of emotions, signals. I think music is one of the strongest powers to evoke memories from the past. And they can be just even certain chords or a voice or, or of course, a whole piece. And I'm immediately transported to something. I say, oh yeah, you know, that reminds me. I haven't heard that for so long. I remember, I remember when. You hear a piece of music and you think, I can remember when, where I was, who I was with. It can transport you. I think it can also kind of transport you to the future if you allow your imagination to go with it. But I think everybody is able to be moved by music to a place they have once been. Locating memory is a fundamental human cultural act. How many experiences have you gone through that you remember? And how many experiences have you gone through that you don't remember? I try to live life so that I remember as much as possible, especially if I have a choice in how to go through life or every day. You want to do things that are more memorable than not. Cultures remember things. Gypsies, the Roma people, they don't have a written language or history, but they code five generations of their experiences through music and songs. So everything that they are, you actually get to hear in the music. They're like 17 layers of sound realities that get incorporated into like one phrase, one sound. And so if you could manage to do that, you then capture something that might be essential. Songs from the Ark of Life begins and ends with two settings of the much-beloved piece Ave Maria. The disc opens with the soaring Bach arrangement by French romantic composer Charles Gounod and closes with Franz Schubert's more serene treatment. In Gounod's Ave Maria, the melody was improvised and then superimposed over Bach's Prelude No. 1 in C major, BWV 846, from the well-tempered clavier. We were looking for a very special piece to start this Arc of Life album. The Bach seems so pure, the beginning of life, and it's such a beautiful arrangement. The Guna arrangement just takes nothing away, it just actually adds something. Exactly. Something really special. It's wonderful. So you it's think a perfect like this. Yeah, it's, you know, one person's creating something and someone else can actually add a layer. It's fabulous. Purity, devotion, mm -hmm. love.
Cradle Song by Johannes Brahms is the common name used for a number of the composer's children's lullabies, better known as Brahms Lullaby. The melody is one of the most famous and recognizable in the world and is used by countless parents to sing their babies to sleep. Who hasn't heard the Brahms Lullaby? We were talking about that the other day and you said, when did I first hear the lullaby? Yeah. And I said, I almost can't remember because yeah. it's something that you've probably heard all your life and it's so beautiful and the, the lilt in it, it's so calming and so we're thinking about, you know, babies and lullabies and children hopefully going to sleep and just being very gentle at the beginning of life. Absolutely. Antonin Dvorak's Songs My Mother Taught Me was originally written for voice and piano in 1880, the fourth of seven pieces from the composer's Gypsy Song Cycle. This work has achieved widespread fame and has been recorded by many of the world's greatest singers and instrumentalists. There are two parts to this song. It's quite a short song, but the first part of the song is somebody remembering that their mother used to tell them stories, but that the mother always had tears coming down her face. She was reserved, but that you yeah, couldn't help but, but you notice see them. the tear-stained cheek. Yeah. And then in the second, the second half of the, the song, is then the, the child themselves relaying now she tells stories to her own children. Because everything is coded in the music yeah. and so that's the way you pass something on. Yeah. So if your your mother had a very desperately sad experience. In fact when we noticed that I think we played it differently. Yes, we did. Right? Because otherwise it could be just a pretty piece of music. Yeah, but we actually read the and, words and thought, oh, and, this and, is quite strong, so even isn't though it? Exactly. So even yep. though we're not singing it, just knowing the words, yeah. it really makes you try and put those thoughts into the music. Born in 1845, Gabriel Fauré was one of the foremost French composers of his generation. An organist, pianist, and teacher, Fauré was greatly influenced later in life by 20th century music. His Papillon, or Butterflies, contains five sections of contrasting material. 
I think both of us have known this piece for a very, very long time, but independently. We never played it together. But we were looking for something that was really joyful and youthful, and it's a very pretty piece, and it's... You know what's great? I don't know if you've ever performed it, but I don't think I've ever performed it. I may have done it once, but I love that piece. It's very, it's it's so, very nice. It's so foray, and you love foray. I love foray's music, so I, I, I'm particularly happy that there are actually a couple of tracks that are included in this of foray's music. And you said that I wanted to play this piece because of that middle section. That because where I can you just love the melody in, yes, exactly. in the middle. It's so, so French. You have to play a couple of kind of quick notes just to get to that point. Exactly. You have to earn it, and yeah. then you can just go. Just you like know. you did when you were a child. Jacob Gada's Jealousy, a tango written in 1925, is the composer's most successful piece. Quick to become popular around the world and now a classic in the modern songbook, it consists of two themes. Gada claimed that the mood of the piece had been inspired by his readings of a sensational news story reporting on a crime of passion. Jalousie, isn't it? Yes, jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> Which, well, it's an important emotion and probably most people have experienced it at some point in their lives. But we felt that this song represented that emotion very, very strongly. And do you remember this incredible video that we watched oh, of a real kind of gypsy playing? It's sort of like a tango orchestra exactly. in Berlin in like 1925. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a black and white short yeah. film that went with it. Exactly. And it was just like, oh. Yeah, from a silent so movie and sultry. Yeah, and the kind of double emotion of of the seduction and then the jealousy and then one minute it's one thing and then the next minute there's another emotion and and I think we captured it in the right. little clip. That's right. There. We play with the different voices because yes. instead of having it all sung by one person, mm -hmm. we're sort of pretending different people's vocal ranges of not necessarily just two people mm -hmm. or one person being jealous. Strong dialogue. And at the end, we just go, oh, it's oh, done. Yeah. It's over. 
Inspired by the Johann Goethe poem, Robert Schumann wrote Vanitas Vanitatum in 1849 as part of five short pieces written for cello and piano in the form of songs without words. This is the first um, piece of a set of folk songs that Schumann wrote, and we've actually performed that a lot, but a little bit more in our distant past. We I think so. Yeah, we used to play the whole set. Um, and we particularly wanted to include the first one because it's all about vanity. I think that one of the most important things that we learn as we travel or as we perform is really where you put your ego. We really wanted to play this piece because here is Schumann who also dealt with multiple yeah. personalities in the way that he thought of himself as one way or another. Obviously something that he was had grappled with and yet we can actually sort of say well you know and, and part of considering and going through the arc of life is to at, at any one point you could say well where are you putting yourself in this situation or in that phase of life
Was It a Dream? The Opus 37 song by Jean Sibelius was originally written for voice and tells the story of love lost or love imagined. We both absolutely love this piece, Was It a Dream by Sibelius. It works so well with the cello and the piano, we couldn't resist to play it. And it's really about not knowing whether something was a dream. You know, were we really in love with each other or did I imagine it? And there are two parts. At the end of one part, it's, was it a dream? You know, with a question mark at the end of it. And at the end, it was a dream. It's finding that answer within the song. And it's the most passionate, beautiful song. You said that Sibelius may be your favorite symphonist. Yes. You have the Nordic withheld passion, but it just comes in full force yeah. in the song. And it's a new song for us. Après en rêve, Opus 7, number one, is one of Gabriel Fauré's most popular vocal pieces, taken from the set of melodies for solo voice and piano known as Trois Melodies. The piece was originally conceived as a set of three and given the Opus number seven almost 20 years after their first publications. It's Après en rêve by Fauré, yes. which, you know, is wonderful to have that another piece of Fauré on the album. And this is a bit, it's one, perhaps one of his most well-known songs. It talks about, about being called into the night, as if, as if the night kind of opens and the two people, that they, they go there. Actually, at the end, it was just a dream and this person wasn't quite what they thought they were. So it's right. almost like love that didn't quite work out to be what you thought. Very, very touching. And towards the end, you have the words, Reviens, reviens, come back, come yes. back, right? Yes. It repeats it like yes. three times. And all my teachers in the early part of my life focused a lot on the music of Fauré. So it's something that's been part of my life for a very long time. My mother used to sing that song, and she was the one who first told me those words, reviens, reviens, reviens.
Edward Elgar's Salut d'Amour, Opus 12, was originally written for violin and piano in 1888. Elgar gave this piece to his bride-to-be as an engagement present. We have played Salut d'Amour forever, and we always love it. Such an unbelievably beautiful piece. And we, how many times have we played it? We play it almost every concert. Yeah. You know why? Because we have to do something for England. Well, so, we always like to so, represent something. Exactly. Here's for Britain. <laughs> and no, we, we, we always salute one another. Yeah. And it's really, really nice. Beginning of a journey with another person. It's filled with yeah. possibility and energy and hope. And, and we so do love it. We and do we love do it. we do play it regularly. George Gershwin's Three Preludes for Solo Piano were first performed by the composer at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. Each prelude is a well-known example of early 20th century American classical music influenced by jazz. Gershwin originally planned to compose 24 preludes, but the number was reduced to seven when it went to manuscript form and then to five for public performance. The number further decreased to The Three Preludes when first published in 1926. Dedicated to his friend and musical advisor Bill Daly, these pieces have been arranged for solo instruments, small ensembles, and piano. It's originally a piano piece. It's really about American brashness. And so, you know, <laughs> well, it has that so side to it too. I exactly. thought I'd let you say that. So, well, of course. <laughs> and, and we often will play that as an encore in response to the British, you know, Salut d'Amour, and they would say, okay, <clears throat> and mm, now, and yeah. now. It doesn't seem particularly advanced jazz in these, in these times, but at the time of he, that he wrote it, it was something really fresh and something really new. To me, it's about kind of striding out in life, you know, but with a young energy.
Frederick Delius, born in the north of England to a prosperous mercantile family, was sent to Florida in 1884 to manage an orange plantation. Influenced by African-American music during his short stay in Florida, he then returned to Europe, making composing his full-time profession. The romance for cello and piano was an enduring favorite. Romance by Delius is a new discovery for both of us. We're both quite touched by yeah. this piece, actually. So probably we've surprised ourselves a little bit right. with it. Put that in contrast with Salut d'Amour, which is the young yes. love. This is now yes, a more mature a bit, love. a bit more established. It's, there's a lot of reflection in it. Yeah. There's longing in it. There's trying to reaching out for... So we try to think of this whole piece as one big expression. One chord yeah, towards the very favorite. end and it's just but because you chose that chord and that's the one that makes the whole song yeah, end and and you actually get to some kind of some uh, kind of resolution some kind of conclusion of some yeah. sort yeah but he's so quintessentially british i think for so many people yes. it's like delius he's almost like a cult figure yes like delius our, lovers are very very strong it's a sort of music that often divides, also that comes in fashions. It's maybe simply that, that the romance has not been heard as much as it should do. Austrian-born composer Fritz Kreisler is regarded as one of the greatest violinists of all time. Known for his sweet tone and expressive phrasing, Kreisler produced a violin sound that was immediately recognizable as his own and apparent on La Gitana for violin and piano. It's a gypsy piece. Absolutely. It's a gypsy, it's almost tango-ish at the same time. And, and Kreisler was this incredible figure. He not only a composer, but he was a, an amazing violinist and a real important musician of the time. Kreisler was an amazing figure in music. Yeah. I think he represented a certain Viennese-style elegance, but he wrote all this music under pseudonyms, pretending it was other people that wrote it, and for the longest time, finally he had to fess up because I think he was being interviewed by some reporter who's really going to look into this. <laughs> so he said, yeah, okay, I wrote it's all me. this music. <laughs> but he wrote in all different styles, in the style of Beethoven, and Gypsy style, and this, that, whatever, and earlier music style. It's fabulous. It's great. Absolutely it's great. fabulous. The Spanish pride, the flirtation, Slightly the, distant at the exactly. same time. And the, you know, so it has the flamenco element in it. It has the Roma music with Arab music, with Spanish music, and then it became a new type of music. Thank you. 
Within the Songs from the Ark of Life collection, Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott have included a haunting piece by contemporary composer Giovanni Solema, who is a friend and colleague of both artists. You introduced me to Solima. I did. I remember it distinctly because we were stuck at an airport in a snowdrift and not able to go anywhere. And I thought, okay, I have a recording of a wonderful cellist called Giovanni Solima oh, that I think Yaya might be interested to hear. But it wasn't so much about his playing, which is absolutely fabulous, but he's an astonishing composer. Bellantonio was a, a film made, I think, in the 1940s. And Solima was asked to write a score for a remake of this old film. The story is really about unfulfilled love. The story talks about somebody who was a famous lover, but actually the reality of him was quite different. I think Solima has captured that. You know, there's a lot of hidden tensions mm -hmm. in this music. And it's a completely different flavor in the arc, in the whole story, to what we've had before and it's somebody current that we both admire and we both work with. He's so proud of coming from Sicily because Sicily has all these historical layers of cultures having been part of it and you see it in the architecture, you hear it in the music and what does it sound like? It sounds like Solomon and it sounds like Suleiman. Here are words and family name and you look at him, he could be all of those. Uh, <laughs> cultures blended into one person. The Swan, from Camille Saint-Saëns' The Carnival of the Animals, is the only movement from the composer's most famous piece allowed to be played in public during his lifetime. Originally written for a cello accompanied by two pianos, Saint-Saëns thought the remaining movements were too frivolous and would damage his reputation. Is this the piece we've played the most, do you think? There are about five mm -hmm. or six pieces in this album that we play. We, we have play to play. So, yes, it's... It, I mean, for me, a concert is almost not complete. Right, you keep we, saying that. I always say we have to play this one. Why do you do that? I is just it love it. I love it. I think, you know, when we were particularly youthful, a little while ago I now. I don't remember anything. But we used to always want to end on these, like, really excitable notes in concerts so right. that everybody went away in some oh, mad were, frenzy. Yeah, yeah. One day we programmed a swan just right at the very end. I mean, just as an encore, you know, that idea of, like, just bringing everybody in to one place, just in a very sort of calm, nice way. And I'm never tired of it. I do always really? say to you, we have to yeah. play this one. It's amazing. <laughs> if there's something that can be so beautiful that it can make you tear up, which sometimes you do. Yeah, I do. In the life story, that's what we're looking for, that moment of sort of tranquility. And it's not like you have to have earned this moment of tranquility. It's, it's just, just tranquil because the swan actually it's just, just glides on the water and you see this magnificent creature and you're just smitten by its, it's beauty and its form. Grieg's first string orchestra works were the two elegiac melodies, Opus 34. Written in 1880, Grieg often performed these two pieces together and gave them new titles. The Wounded Heart, written in the key of C minor, 
belongs in the same sound family as Greek's dark G minor works. Wounded Heart, wow. Well, that's quite a powerful title, isn't it? You love Greek. I do, I do love you Greek. Really do. And I know you must play the piano concerto. Yes, I and, do. And, but you, you actually played a chord, yeah. and you said, that is Greek. You know, this yes, is like Greek DNA. it could only be Greek, DNA. so it's not what you might expect in a piece where everything seems perhaps a little bit regular, but it's quite, it's very dark. dark. It gets darker. Darker. And yeah. stronger in and its so darkness. The, the title is very much is is present. It is about being wounded and perhaps wounded heart, not necessarily by love but by loss. That's how I read it. It could be, yeah. You know, because it has elegy in the original title. It's not wounded by an event. It's a wound that goes through time. Essentially, we play that theme three times, and each time it gets a little bit. The notes get a little longer as the wound, it gets deeper. It gets deeper. Yeah. So it doesn't get less with time, mm. it actually gets get stronger. deeper. So you get more and more upset the more you think about it. Tchaikovsky's Valse Sentimentale is the last piece from a set of charming, intimate miniatures, all dedicated to women and known as Six Pieces for Piano, Opus 51, these works were written during a very difficult period for the composer in the summer of 1882, a time when he led a nomadic existence, constantly traveling and without a real home. The Valse Sentimental by Tchaikovsky, I think. <sighs> the other day when we were playing this piece, you actually just couldn't stop. You love this melody <laughs> so much, don't you? Well. Like takes you somewhere you almost don't want to come out. <laughs> no, I, I think of those films. Oh, you were with, saying like with, the, uh, like the you, you know, the Fassbinder films. You know, it's in a, in a sort of cabaret, 1920s, yeah. and Lily Marlene was one film. And you can think of a vocal singing, uh, smoky room, morose, degenerate, slightly, you know, everything's sort of downtrodden, and it's like one of those voices that has 17 layers of experience. But he does try to sort of, you know, there's a moment in the middle of the piece where there's like a little, a little bit of, a bit of hope. Maybe we can, but you come always come back to this sentimental feel. Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time was written while he was imprisoned in a German work camp during World War II. Using decrepit instruments, the musicians premiered the piece outdoors in the rain during the winter of 1941 for an audience of about 400 fellow prisoners and guards. It was said that Messiaen later recalled, never was I listened to with such rapt attention and comprehension. So coming from 
the valse, sentimental. That movement comes from the Quartet to the End of Time, which was written when Messiaen was in a prison camp during World War II in Silesia. In that camp, there was a violinist, there was a clarinetist, there was pianist. a cellist, and didn't Messiaen play the piano? And so he wrote this piece of music, and he was a devout Catholic. There's this movement that's just for piano and cello. I mean, it was just written in the most extraordinary circumstances. You know, we simply cannot imagine that. You mentioned the word transcendence, how to see past what is the most unbelievably traumatic circumstances, but to still be creative within that, to see that there is a something eternal, something that cannot be stopped. Within the human realm, it takes you to the furthest reaches of what you can code in time. Mm. So from there, I think he starts to code divine love. Like how you say, okay, yeah. what, do you, what do, you do you do? That? So he had his method and his methodology was somewhat in those chords and in, those, in the way the that you're supposed thirds. to play the falling thirds, which are the thirds could be the trinity, but he miraculously is able to code those sentiments in sound. Written by Claude Debussy when he was a teenager, Bossoir, or Beautiful Evening, is an art song that describes the warm glow of the evening. You brought yeah. Debussy Bossoir to us. I did, because in the making of this album, or, or, or during the time we were thinking about all kinds of pieces, this had sort of crept in, and then, you know, were we actually going to play it, or were, were we not? And I thought, we have to play this piece, it's just so incredibly beautiful and it's very sensual at the same time and it just has its own unique space when we looked at the words he sort of describes the warm glow of the evening there's a river you know it will eventually arrive in the ocean you will eventually go to your grave like we all will if we didn't see the words we might have come up with something yeah absolutely very very different Songs from the Ark of Life begins and ends with two much-beloved settings of the traditional Ave Maria. This contemplative version by Franz Schubert is one of the composer's most popular works and has been recorded by a wide variety of singers as well as arranged for piano by Franz Liszt. We've been talking about the Ark of Life and then it's how do you put a conclusion to that. So how did this whole journey start? And what seemed a lovely idea was to come back to Ave Maria, but in a slightly different form, in this wonderful song by Schubert. I feel quite moved when we play it. It's so ethereal and in a way has the same purity that I feel that the Bach does at the beginning. It's like you've gone through all these experiences, you know, you think of where we went to with the travels or with the children or with love or jealousy or everything and then finally it's this kind of beautiful release it comes full circle it comes full circle so it seemed a very natural way to conclude the story what do we do with a life we all share that well you go from the beginning to the end and what happens in between what do people go through 
What do they experience? What do they cherish? What do they want to remember? What do they want to forget? How do they want to sort of say, well, I'm going to put an X on this part of my life? And how do you express that in music? How do you express longing? How do you express regret? How do you express young love, mature love, trying to remember something, but you can't quite remember it? And then it comes back in full force. I think hopefully this compilation of songs can inspire or stimulate someone's imagination in considering what their own lives are like. Celebrating 30 years of friendship and collaboration between Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott. The songs from the Arc of Life audio special was written and produced by Max Horowitz and engineered by Adrian Thorstensen. From WQXR in New York, I'm Elliot Forrest. So that's why we're making this album. And the reason we want to do this now is not just because we've been playing for 30 years, it's because I'm turning 60 this year. And I think that's actually really interesting because officially I'm now old. You know, ARP, the whole bit, and I can get those magazines for free. I can go on the bus for less. You know, it's, like, it's all great, but it actually makes me think about what the 60s may be like, but also what's happened before. So actually, I'm in a good position to kind of say, here's an example of what we have experienced, and we'd like to share it with you.